0: Welcome to ANA, Conversations with Myanmar. If you'd like to add your voice to the conversation here at ANA, please reach out to us through any of our social media platforms or you can email us directly. This conversation features Mark Farminer, Director of Burma Campaign UK. Mark has been involved in advocacy for human rights in Myanmar for over 20 years. Here, Mark offers his expertise and knowledge on a range of topics, including Ming Long Lang, ethnic armed organisations, Aung San Suu Kyi, as well as the role of social media companies and international businesses in Myanmar. Let's start the conversation. Hey Mark, how are you? Yeah,
1: just had a huge thunderstorm here and... We got water pouring through the kitchen ceiling, and it was coming up to up through the air bricks at the front of the house. And so I just had to—I picked up my son, and we came back. It started just as I went to collect him from school, and yeah. So I'm sorry, I had to run around. <laughs> crazy. And we've got air brick covers because we had a flood once years ago. So. I'm charging around in the garage trying to find them and put them on to stop the water getting into that house and things. So, bucket find buckets for the kitchen.
0: Lovely British summer.
2: Are
1: <laughs> <laughs> we start raining now? It's it's just trickling now, but I can see all the drains on the roads were like the gullies were completely full. They, there was nowhere for the water to drain through. And my house is a little bit below the road level, so if they get that full, it all starts coming here. <laughs> but. It looks like we're okay now. Yes. So <laughs> Just get the heart the packet, rate going. <laughs> the in place, the cover's in place. So I'm sorry for that.
0: No worries. So yeah. thanks for finding the time, Mark. You're, you're very good because we know how busy you are and you have been unwell as well. So we have yeah, really had
1: a, a rough patch again for a few weeks again.
0: Yeah. yeah. So thanks a million for taking the time uh, to chat with us. If we go back then, where was your first kind of connection with me and
1: The first time I remember being aware of what was going on there was in 88, like a lot of people. But for myself, it was because I was part of an anti-apartheid campaign. And we had a protest outside the South African embassy in Trafalgar Square that was 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It went on for years to free Nelson Mandela and all political prisoners. So I remember we had shifts there, so four shifts a day. I remember being there one morning and looking at the newspaper, and it was about how the military regime had been brought down by the protests. And we were discussing it outside the South African embassy, thinking, "Wow, well, if it can happen, if it can happen in Burma, hopefully soon it can happen in South Africa as well." But obviously, we saw the military re- take control in '88, and. And then actual reforms taking place in South Africa and a transition to democracy. So it happened the opposite way around than we <laughs> were thinking at the time. So I followed, I followed Burma through the media after that. And I wasn't aware of a, a campaign for Burma or anything. But when I started as a volunteer at Christian Aid, the head of the campaigns team then was one of the co-founders of Burma Campaign. So he asked me to start doing some volunteer work. So that's how I got started.
0: And here you are, all these years later, still, yeah. still there. Um, are you surprised that in twenty twenty one you're just as active as you've ever been on this, and that we're back in this kind of severe, like a full military takeover? Or are you kind of not surprised?
1: I mean, if if I would, if you would have asked me in ninety eight whether you know, in twenty twenty one it would still be the same or worse, I would have been surprised. But, you know, during the whole time of the reforms that took place, you know, from 2010, 2011 until the coup, there were so many flaws, so many problems, which were sort of being ignored. So I can't say I'm sur- that surprised. I think not many people were, and I think us included, were not expecting a coup because it didn't seem to be in the interest of the military. But of course it was in the interest of Min Lai who was going to have to step down. And that's what we weren't taking into account because in. The military often, it acts as an institution. It's not got, you know, a dictator traditional dictatorship since they Win stood down. It acts very much as an institution. But it does appear that one of the main motivations for this coup was the Minangla's own personal ambition because the military seemed to be doing so well from the 2008 constitution. They literally got away with genocides. They were huge amount of new resources, you know, budget increasing every year. They had everything to lose and they, you can see that they have. So, yeah, it's, it's not gone their way at all, as they would have expected.
0: So do you think that is the most likely then, that the Minang Lang Thierry, his own personal um, ego, his not wanting to relinquish power, retire? Does that seem the most likely reason, I guess?
1: <clears throat> it, it does seem to be the most likely. But I think that obviously there's a lot of underlying factors behind that because the other generals, the military have swung in 100%. Behind him at senior levels, you know, so he's confident enough to leave the country, go to ASEAN summits, go to Russia, and you don't do that if you're not really confident in your own position. So obviously there's a lot of other factors at play as well, which, you know, everyone's always speculating about and claiming some sort of special and inside knowledge, but none of us really know for mm-hmm. sure what the motivations are. There were all sorts of different sort of battles going on behind the scenes in the corridors in Napodore over, you know, control over different resources and things happening but it's hard to see that you're on balance there was anything that was threatening the military's core interests that they saw as such a threat that it would justify the coup when you balance it out against all the the benefits that they've received but obviously they they've got their own way and their own priorities and their own thinking so yeah we can never read their minds.
2: Do you think if there had been more international involvement and opposition and interrogation in terms of the Rohingya genocide that this coup would have happened, that he would have been more reluctant to to take the action that he did?
1: Yeah, I think that he he would definitely have been emboldened. You know, throughout the reform process, you know, we saw an increase in conflict in ethnic states, but huge money for a peace process when conflict was increasing. I mean, if you were funding a humanitarian project Feeding people and more people were hungry, donors would have a, a rethink. But with the peace process, you know, they, they refused to do so. They got very embedded in the narrative that they decided and what was happening in the country. And, you know, Rohingya genocide didn't fit with that. They didn't want to act on that. So I think he was feeling quite confident in terms of the very weak international response to the Rohingya genocide. So he would have calculated that you know, the international response to the coup would be similarly weak. And, you know, miscalculating by arresting all of the eighty-eight generation NLD leaders on the first night of the coup and not recognizing the huge numbers of younger generation and younger activists that there are now who would be able to mobilize people. So I think he made two massive miscalculations. But I think certainly, you know, he's consistently been allowed to get away with crimes against ethnic people, violations of international law, he would have had a strong sense of impunity and thinking that you know, there would not be that strong a response to the coup.
0: And just in terms of in the international response, uh, if we go back to 2016, 2017, when, when those reports were coming out and the fact-finding missions uh, on what was happening in Rakhine, is Aung San Suu Kyi's symbol... In Myanmar or her position, is is that what prevented the international community maybe from from acting more strongly at that time? Do they think because she was in that position, they were backing her or, or maybe they were hiding behind her and, and to not act or feeling that as long as she was the symbol and she was there, we don't have to act or do anything? Did that play a role in the lack of action?
1: I think it did. But I think you do have to take it back to 2012, when we saw the first violence against the, the Rohingya, because this is a time when sanctions were just being lifted you know in, it was in april 2012 that you had the european union announce that it was suspending its sanctions the u.s had started to lift sanctions you were starting to get that constant flow of foreign ministers and then prime ministers and presidents going to the country in this huge hyped narrative of a reforming opening up country and all the voices warning you know of the problems that were outstanding the constitution that the military had drafted, all, all the different issues were being completely ignored. And and it, it, even civil society in the country and you know, in exile along the Thai-Burma border were basically, they were losing or threatened with losing their funding if they continued to be skeptical about the entire process. And the international community massively bought into this narrative of you know, Myanmar is a reforming country. We've got to seize the moment, all the support we can. And obviously there's geopolitical... Politics behind it, um, for the US and European Union, and there were trade imperatives as well. And China, North Korea, a whole load of factors behind all of that. But it did mean that then when we started to see the first wave of violence against the Rohingya in June 2012, it didn't fit with the narrative that the Western governments have been telling about what was happening in the country at all. They were, they were framing Sane Sane as a, a reformer. And, you know, hailing him as a reformer and, you know, he was starting to be getting international invitations and things. So, you know, the fact that ethnic cleansing was happening on his watch didn't fit. And we saw the British government actively downplaying what was happening. We documented their public statements and answers in Parliament and compared them with the facts. And, you know, they were literally downplaying human rights violations and all the problems because it didn't fit with the narrative. And that's the first step of encouraging that sense of impunity, that they can do what they like with the Rohingya. And they did, you know. So we then saw year after year an increase in violence and repression of the Rohingya that took us to 2017. So we saw the exclusion from the internationally funded census. We saw a no response from the international community on that, that the Rohingya were excluded, nothing. Exclusion from the internationally funded and supported 2015 election, again, no significant international response from that and a whole series of other steps taking place within the country you know and whipping up anti-muslim anti-rohingya feeling you know so so i think that you know that got to the point of 2016 when there was the first wave of violence in response to the ASA attacks and and then the bigger attacks in 2017. so it didn't fit with the narrative the story they would lifted sanctions they were encouraging companies to go in and you know ethnic cleansing and genocide was so they sort of put it to the side and said this is a very long, deep, complex issue. And we, you know, we had one foreign office official even trying to persuade us that ethnic cleansing was a sign of progress because it meant that the country was opening up and repressed tensions were being released. There was an absolute refusal to accept that this was not repressed tensions and communal violence. This was people from high up. There's prejudice there. It's endemic. But people were stirring it up they were using it. You know, people in Rakhine State were not getting up in the morning. And and the first thing they think about is, oh, we've got Rohingya in the country. They had a million other problems. It was politicians who were intensively stirring up hatred, propaganda and lies to get to that situation. And they, they started doing it in the 2010 election and they had a free reign to carry on. So that was one part of it. And then, yeah, then you did have the constant excuses. Aung San Suu Kyi is in a Delicate situation, you know, coming back to your original question, <laughs> <laughs> a long route. Young Sung Suu Kyi is in a delicate situation. It's a difficult. You know, we have to be very careful. We can't do anything to undermine her. And that's another reason for not doing anything, even though privately they were very aware in meetings with diplomats and, and other people. She was coming out with things that would be considered very racist, anti, Muslim very prejudice against Rohingya. I mean, when well, one of the times when I met her and we discussed this, she slammed her hand on the table, saying, "I will not use the word Rohingya." She was talking to diplomats about global Muslim conspiracies, about Muslim takeover of Buddhist countries, you know, a whole range of appalling things, and and they were well aware of that. You know, she'd been saying that to some of them, and yet they decided to just you know play it easy with her as well. So. She continued all of the policies of the military against the Rohingya, even tightened some of them before the, um, yeah, the attacks in August 2016.
2: I mean, you said that the diplomats were well aware and you yourself were, were there when Aung San Suu Kyi slammed down her hand. She was still being championed as the answer at, at the time by the UK, by the Western media. No. Um, and uh, as you've just explained, uh, 2012, these atrocities started. And it didn't fit in with the way that they wanted them to go. So therefore they turned a blind
1: eye. I think what we've, what we've seen is, you know, this so-called policy of for the greater good we will ignore this for the greater good. So the narrative that there is transition going on at last, there's change. Of course, it's going to be a bumpy, rocky road and there'll be challenges, but you know, this is happening now. This is the transition that is going on and we're going to back it. And so then it's like things like genocide of the Rohingya happen and. And we'll put that aside for the greater good, because if we act on that, we might undermine the progress of this, you know, so-called democratic transition. And then there's, you know, the issues with, you know, the increased conflict that happened in Kachin State from 2011. ceasefires being broken in Shan State, Kachin State, and we put that aside and for the greater good. And so they're still political prisoners, but for the greater good. And, you know, the new law that's meant to guarantee protest actually restricts protest even more. And, but for the greater good, we put that aside. And that was the, the general approach to ignore these human rights problems, to play them down. And, you know, and the same to look the other way with Aung San Suu Kyi, what she was doing. The Reuters journalists who were arrested for exposing a massacre was, the, was pretty much the one and only exception where they took a stand. And after that, Aung San Suu Kyi froze most Western ambassadors out didn't want to meet with them anymore and they freaked and they they didn't take a lesson from it. it was that when they did pile in and put pressure finally those journalists were released they took a lesson from it that we need to rebuild relationships and be quiet and stop talking about it now because they couldn't stand the idea that Aung San Suu Kyi wouldn't meet with them and talk to them anymore so yeah human rights was not you know the priority there it was all about this transition and even when Aung San Suu Kyi was saying racist things to them and keeping political prisoners in jail and not respecting human rights and then going on to defend genocide, they were still, she is the best and only hope for the country and we don't want to do anything that might undermine her. So that is the approach they followed.
0: I think we've we've discussed this with a few people. And one of the things, you know, I've asked others as well, is like how much like investment investment, did the West put into Aung San Suu Kyi at the expense of the country where all the focus has been on her, which is almost distracting to everything else. And like a lot of people I've spoken to who are very anti Aung San Suu Kyi, it sounds very like to me, they're they're missing the point, like almost like I've had someone say to me, well, like I want nothing to do with a new national government where, you know, where Aung San Suu Kyi is part of it. And I'm saying, well, you say you you want democracy from Myanmar. And if they choose her as their leader, then you have to accept that, surely. So I just, I find it hard. I, I feel like the West has played a huge role in her. Like, because we love a symbol. It's easier to sell and it can go on a newspaper. And it can, even her trial has made the news here. But like, there's been so many bigger things have happened in the past few months that haven't barely made it into the news here. She's always going to, you know, sell a newspaper or at least you know, the Western media seem to feel she is. So I just wonder how much the West has played a role in her symbolism or somebody who is, you know, untouchable.
1: It was quite funny for us in the early sort 2012, 2013, when we were going into governments and they were defending their policies based on what Aung San Suu Kyi was saying. So Aung San Suu Kyi wants sanctions lifted. Aung San Suu Kyi wants this. Aung San Suu Kyi doesn't want a UN Commission of Inquiry into violations of international law to justify their policies. When for the previous 15 years, we've been going to them saying the democracy movement, including Aung San Suu Kyi, wants X, Y and Z. And they were saying no. Even when Aung San Suu Kyi's personal friends from Oxford were in senior places in the foreign office, they were... Refusing to support the targeted sanctions, the things that Aung San Suu Kyi, the NLD and others were calling for. Once Aung San Suu Kyi was calling for sanctions to be lifted, suddenly they were all very keen to follow her and listen to what she was doing. So we did find for a long time, yeah, the Aung San Suu Kyi and the media from politicians was praised, you know, idolized by many, but not actually listened to in terms of when she was asking for international action a lot of the time. But it was very hard. As campaigners, we did. For a long time, we highlighted Aung San Suu Kyi a lot because it was the only way we could get any attention on the country. She was a a doorway to the country. It's hard to imagine now, but you know, in the early 2000s, getting anything into the media about what was happening there was incredibly hard. When the Shun Women's Action Network produced their license to rape reports, I think there was a small feature in the Telegraph here in the UK and nothing else. It made media in the u s more, but in across europe it was it received very little attention, and this was the first report that was exposing the mass systematic use of rape by the military. but it was happening in an ethnic area. It was not about Aung San su Kyi. I remember talking to Bangkok based journalists trying to arrange saying we can smog you across the border into conflict zones, or we if you go in as a tourist, we can set you up with contacts to meet people and do a story and they would say, well, no, I don't want to do anything and risk getting caught because if I get on the visa blacklist, then I won't be able to do the Aung San Suu Kyi story when she's released. Because when all the journalists were based in Bangkok, there were no international journalists in the country. And the big story was Aung San Suu Kyi when she was occasionally released from house arrest. And so they didn't want to know about what was happening in the rest of the country and risk missing that story. In 2006, There was a big military offensive in Karen State. Within a few months, about 80,000 people were displaced. We could not get media interest for a long, long time in that and really struggling to get any statements from European governments. And then Aung San Suu Kyi's house, there were some tiles replaced on the roof. And that was in the media. And diplomats were asking us what we thought about it. It created huge excitement. and, And there were literally people talking about Whether the fact that Aung San Suu Kyi had been allowed to fix a hole in her roof meant that it was a sign of political change coming to the country. Were the military thawing? Was there going to be a process? And so that's the situation we were living with internationally. Trying to get attention was so hard and that there were, but anything to do with Aung San Suu Kyi, the media were there. But it doesn't mean that the politicians, the governments were listening to it because they absolutely were. Yeah, it was a a huge change. Once Aung San Suu Kyi was supporting lifting sanctions, they were all for her and we got to follow her and do what she says. So I think there is, there's expedience there as well. Aung San Suu Kyi was talking about, you know, this is a country in transition. We need international support. It's going to be challenging. And that fitted the narrative that they had as well. So, but I think, you know, we've seen only the United Nations after the genocide of the Rohingya, only the United Nations did a review of its policies and approach to saying, did we do anything wrong? The UK hasn't, the US hasn't. I think Canada as well did do a review of its policies. So, yeah, Canada and the United Nations, the only one. European Union, nothing. So they haven't looked at their approach, both in terms of the facts. They got it so wrong and genocide happened and they got it so wrong and a coup happened. They haven't looked at all to try and see, did we make any mistakes? Is there anything we can learn? Both in terms of future policy for Miami but also future policy around the world. You know, when you talk to diplomats, they they refuse to accept that anything could have been different and everything was inevitable.
2: I mean, after listening to that fairly early on when this first started and the, and the murdering of, of the shooting of the peaceful protesters and all over Facebook with my Facebook friends was like, like, where's the international community? Why aren't you helping us? And like listening to you speak, it's like, where have they been the whole time? Um, and it's just, obviously, we've heard from a few people who have said that change has got to come from the Myanmar people. They're the, they're the people that can win this. They're the people that can finally defeat them and get rid of them. And we've got the future generation that are more aware and starting to communicate together, and the ethnic minorities are starting to work together, and, and that's where where the change is going to be. But I still, as a Westerner, feel a frustration there's not more done by the international community. But like you say, it's it's just, it's nothing new, which is just, oh, it's quite sickening, to be
1: honest. It, It is very frustrating, but I think we've always said what we do internationally is not the make and break. We can play an important role. We can make a big difference, but it's always going to be the people of the country who clinch, win the freedom, not us. And, but we can do a lot. And if you look at the military, you look at like, for example, his business interest. There isn't, I'm, I'm not aware of a single military company which has not at some time benefited from Western investment or other country, other international investment, expertise, um, finance, equipment. You go to the breweries and, you know, they've got Danish companies supplying the equipment, Japanese companies that have invested a British company that provided you know, it just goes on and on for all of their companies. So if you think everyone thinks about the country and, you know, it, it, the, the sanctions that they were under the old military dictatorship, the international attention and everything. But if you actually look internationally, the military have got a lot more international support than Aung San Suu Kyi, the NLD, or the entire democracy movement ever got. You know, most of their arms, almost all of their arms are either bought from abroad or are used with using foreign technology yeah so the military have been very dependent for money and for arms on the international community they've received a lot of support like that so there is a lot that could have been done and still can be done to sort of cut that off but that's going to take time because you know the, the businesses have been built you know there's a the new toothpaste and Toothbrush factory that they put, you know, with German and other European companies supplying all the equipment for expertise for manufacturing. So all this has gone in now. They're making that money, but we can stop it. We can make it more difficult. They can't repair things. We can, we can make their life more difficult and stop it happening again. You know, everything that we can do, you know, people are not paying their electricity bills in the country. They're doing so many different things, not buying lottery tickets, anything that they can to try and reduce revenue. And we can do the same to help. We got more than 70 countries who supported the UN General Assembly resolution, which called to stop the flow of arms. Do not have arms embargo themselves. So there's a whole load of things that we can do to sort of turn words into action, and to 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 maximise support to to make you know just adding straws to the camel's back. Most of the straws are going to come from people in the country, but we can contribute. We can help, and that's that's always been our approach. And So, you you know, we're going to, we're going to get to a point now. The, the people that are traditionally always anti-sanctions are lying low now because there's so many horrific things coming on. But, you know, they're going to start coming back. They're going to say these sanctions are hurting ordinary people and sanctions don't work. And you're driving the country into the arms of Russia and China and all these old chestnuts are going to start coming out. But we know that sanctions are not going to bring the military down by themselves. We never said they would. It's all part of a big picture. You've got that mass protests, civil disobedience, the different actions happening in the country. You've got you know, international justice, legal initiatives happening, building arms embargoes, reducing, cutting off different sources of revenue. That's all going to add up. There's no magic bullet. It's just about, you know, and because there's no magic bullet is why it's all the more important to everything that can be done is done. And there's lots more that can be done. So we're actually quite pleased this time around there has, been a different approach in the sanctions by the international community. Because what we saw before was an atrocity, a round of sanctions, and then nothing for years, the military finding ways to adapt to those sanctions, and then another atrocity, another round of sanctions. And always atrocities that were happening in central Burma. If the atrocities happened in ethnic states, there was no reaction. But what we see now is, you know, for the US, I think five or six, seven rounds of sanctions For the EU, three, for the UK, four, five as well. So we've got this constant implementation of new sanctions targeting different sources of revenue, targeting different individuals, which is very different from that one-off slap on the wrist and then forget about it approach. And if they can continue with that, I think that's really important because the military would have been counting, oh, yeah, there'll be a... A few sanctions and we can deal with that. You know, all they got was a holiday ban. They committed genocide and, you know, the US and UK stopped them going on holiday. The EU didn't even do that. So, you know, to have this constantly increasing rounds of sanctions, I think psychologically as well as economically is very important. But we need to see that combined with more arms embargoes. We've seen the UK has been working on that at the G7. They got Japan to adopt its own arms embargo. That's really significant. Because the two countries that have introduced arms embargoes since the coup are Asian, Japan and South Korea. And that's not what you're expecting. So to see the sanctions expanding yeah. with the arms embargoes like that is really important as well. And will have shocked the military as well. So we've just got to keep finding all these different angles and keep slogging on. And it's going to get harder and harder, as you say, the media now hardly reporting anything that's happening. It's going to get harder and harder to maintain that sort of focus and interest.
0: And when we look, Mark, at these companies who, like, even I'm just thinking of myself, when I was there, like, just after the coup happened, like, within a few days, a boycott list came out, you know, we were all sending this, people were sending it to me, my friends going, and like, I had been living there for four years drinking Myanmar beer, and I never knew that I was giving profit to the military, like, I was naive to that, you know, and within... A day of knowing that—that that was the end of ever ever having anything to do with that—and people got rid of their Mytel SIM cards like overnight, and they just stopped. I just think that there's more awareness now of how you're giving money to the military, but I also think the international organisations and companies the military are benefiting from—they—they they cannot continue for much longer. Surely, I mean, maybe with Ansan Suji there, they could hide behind her, but I mean, we live in a cancel culture. How can they continue? Like after the genocide, now the coup, like how can they continue to be operating in that country?
1: This is a tricky one. we're, We're sort of grappling with because there are yeah people we work with, organizations we work with are like no one do anything. that gives any revenue at all to the military. And, you know, it's that complete, you know, so international companies should not pay taxes, not pay license fees and things like that. And then you had others saying, well, actually Telenor have been really good and we want an alternative to the military. And so people, people were criticizing Telenor for paying its license fee. They were telling us, please criticize them. We did. And then some of the same people, as well as other people were saying, well, actually we don't want them to leave because if they go, who have we stuck? Who have we got? It's all going to be government military controlled, SAC controlled or a redo who are, (laughs) yeah. They're not interested in human rights. They've not, you know, Telenor at least spoke out. It tried to publish the orders for all its faults and the way that they treated civil society in different times and things. Telenor were the best and they didn't want them to go. So if that meant, yes, they were having to pay tax and license fees, that might be a price worth paying. And then others as well saying the same about for jobs, you know, that we've seen garment workers in particular all losing their jobs because companies are not sourcing and, you know, if they're there trying minimising, a lot of people, obviously a lot of people saying they do want companies to pull out, but others were saying that they don't want all companies to pull out. They don't want to see that. Most of the civil society groups that we work with in the country were saying they don't want all international companies to pull out. They don't want it to have anything to do with military companies and now state-owned enterprises as far as possible, but not asking for completely for them to completely pull out. So... And that was the same under the old military dictatorship as well. There was a call for no new investments and, you know, not to do business in a lot of different sectors, but there wasn't a a complete sort of, complete boycott like there had been with South Africa and apartheid. So I remember, like, we found many, many years ago, mung beans from Ayama in Tesco, and we went and we talked to different people about what do they think about this. And in the end, you know, the, the feedback that we got was, let it go, you know. The military control a lot of the agricultural trading companies, but we can't be sure how or where this one got there. So it is complex, I think, but I think the issue is that you're coming back to how you were there and drinking Myanmar beer, and companies that were going in were not paying attention to the human rights issues, so... Whether they were doing development projects which were aggravating conflict and human rights violations, or they were working. So we we had a European company that helped the the Dagon Brewery completely revamp. So it's got a whole new canning factory, and not even aware that they were working for a military-owned company. There was no attention or due diligence at all. Another company that was working for a military company threatened to sue us for saying they were working for a military-owned company, and. And, uh, and we say you are, and saying, you prove it. And then, uh, just you use Google. Just Google it. You know you're working for them, and you haven't even googled this, <laughs> that they're owned by a military company. Yeah. So there was yeah, and not a lot of attention. I mean, we produced a, a boycott list in the February before the coup, a year before the coup, and we were very uncomfortable doing it because we think it's not our job to tell people in Miami what to do. Well, we'll tell we'll tell you or Westerners what to do or companies what to do, but people from the country telling them what to do. So, you know, we didn't want to – we produced a boycott list of the military products and brands, which is what was the base for what was circulated straight after the coup. But we produced it because the activists who work within the country were too afraid to. So they were asked us to produce it because they said, if we produce this under Aung San Suu Kyi's government and with the way the military are, it's too risky for them to uh, – produce the list, publish the list or anything like that. So they wanted us to. So we very carefully worded the boycott list as, you know, providing the information to enable people to boycott if they choose to, rather than calling for a boycott at that time. And the media that that were in the country wanted to report on it and couldn't find people in the country to interview for radio TV. You know, people in the country were too afraid to be interviewed about boycotting military companies. So it got some attention in the Burmese language media, but not that much. And embassies, you know, activists were telling us how embassies were serving the Myanmar beer at their receptions. <laughs> and the embassies knew. Well, we had a years-long battle with the British government to get them to introduce a policy that no British aid could be used to source from military companies. That should have been a no-brainer, you know. But what was then the Department for International Development resisted it for years so we were saying you could be giving aid to someone and they're buying the rice from a military company uh, aid is going to a military company no concern about that they were not interested so the investment aid investment they you know to to make it a condition that if you invest in a company they don't work for a military company was another huge battle we had to fight so there was just this acceptance of the military
0: and there's also like some of these companies are not maybe realising, because I know you, you've mentioned it before, that they're linked to human rights violations, you know, forced labour, things like that, and, and also environmental destruction as well. So there's a lot of reasons why, you know, certain companies might want to rethink their business operations in somewhere like Myanmar.
1: Damster a huge you know example of that because you've got so many international companies and, you know, and they're saying, oh, we're doing consultation, but yeah. You know, the military turn up with some foreigners to talk to villagers and say, see how they feel about a dam and losing their village. It's nonsense. Yeah. You know, so yeah, we, we had example of international companies where we were hearing and we couldn't even talk about some of the examples we heard with international companies and the dams because it would put the local villagers in danger. Just, you know, if it was known that they were talking to other civil society groups or ourselves. So we couldn't even publish a report on what. People were saying, and these were projects that were being managed, run by Western companies by, from Norway, from France. They didn't care. They, they just, yeah, they, they had an agreement from the civilian Aung San Suu Chi led government to operate, to manage this project and to build this dam, which was going to benefit the country. And, and they paid no attention, no attempt to the fact that this was, you know, these were ethnic states, that there was conflict and environmental issues there that The central government just did not care about because it didn't care what was happening to its ethnic people. It wanted the revenue. But, you know, they had to sign off from the government and that was all they really cared about.
0: So what kind of message would you be sending to companies that are still operating or that are indirectly giving profits to the military right now? Like what would be the message to them to stop, to do their research, to figure out where the money is going and how it's being used?
1: I think the key thing is make sure you're not doing business with any military owned or controlled companies and trying as far as it's possible, because it's not always possible to make sure you're not doing business with companies that are owned by military family members and relatives like that. We're currently waiting, we're sort of having dialogue and we're talking to different civil society groups for exactly what their position and policy is for international companies operating in the country and what they want to say. And so... I, I can't jump in now and say exactly mm. what that is because you know, we need to, to follow that. The NUG has changed a bit of its approach now. It's not asking all international companies to pull out either. So we need to see what you've got, the political leaders and different civil society, how they, they're they still, you know, everything has evolved so fast, things have happened so quick. And we're kind of transitioning now where people were like, we're all out. We're going to bring down the military. The coup's not going to succeed. And... So we, we're in all-out resistance, and now people are being forced back into work. So things are not the same as they were before, where there was a real belief and hope that they could bring down the military through mass civil disobedience. So now people are looking at longer-term strategies and what that approach means. I think there was a real desire to tank the entire economy, hoping that it would bring down the military. And at one point, you know, so for some people, that's changing now. I've not got a clear idea yet of where things are going to fall in terms of a kind of a policy. of, But I think it needs to happen quickly because so many companies are pulling out. And one of the things that they will be worried about is criticism over being linked to the military and and human rights directly. And I think they need some direction from civil society and political leaders, democracy leaders in the country on what is expected of them for the future. But I I think... the majority of international companies, Western companies, have already either gone or made a decision to go. Mm-hmm. So and that's not going to change.
0: I imagine you know. that as a Western company, and, and, and I know people spoke a lot about Telner and how, how much people felt better having a Telner SIM card while in there. But there also, there comes a point when they can no longer operate on an ethical level because of what they're being asked to do or being forced to do. So I can see why they're, eventually you become compromised as a company. Maybe you have to leave for those reasons as well. But the other thing I guess I would be curious to know what you think, Mark, is the role of social media, because we've seen the the propaganda war has started. I mean, a lot of people would say that Facebook played a huge role in the Rohingya genocide and that campaign of hate being fed. Do you think that tech companies have a responsibility here? at this time for Myanmar?
1: In the past, we used to get very frustrated with all the attention on Facebook, because, you know, so when the Rohingya genocide happened, there were more articles about Facebook and the genocide than there were about Minonglai and the genocide. So the the genocide would have happened with or without Facebook, but Facebook made it a lot easier. They helped. So they, they, you know, they are complicit, We tried to shift the focus away because there was such an obsession with international media, with politicians and others on social media, on Facebook, to the detriment that, you know, there wasn't the criticism of the military. There wasn't the, you know, and what to do about the military. It was hard to get that debate going. But I think we've been forced more and more onto, you know, Facebook just by its own appalling reactions to everything basically (laughs) is we wrote to them and uh, to facebook and we said look if you had set out to find a way to operate causing you know maximum harm and also damage to your own reputation this is the way you would have gone about it you know so i remember in 2012 when there was the explosion of hate speech anti-muslim cartoons and anti-rohingya cartoons in 2012 and 2013 reporting things to facebook and just you know everything slow when you did finally get a response it was this does not violate our community standards and over and over again and yeah no action then they certainly made it a lot easier for the government Aung San Suu Kyi's government and the military to whip our hatred of a Rohingya you know from 2016 2017 and I think it's important that you know we it it's Aung San Suu Kyi's Facebook page that has the flashing fake rape sign on it not the military's yeah facebook facilitated this they provided a platform so it was all everything that was on facebook was also in state television state newspapers state radio but facebook just had such an enormous reach there that it's so important and you know we saw when we approached them about military companies saying you you've got these companies you know they you're providing a free advertising platform for companies the profits of which help pay for the genocide which help pay for human rights violations and you know their absolute refusal to remove them, even to this day. You know, so they said they were kicking the military off Facebook, but they kept their companies on. They're taking advertising from Mytel. They're taking, literally, taking money from the military that they claim to have kicked off Facebook. And now, yeah, we've seen. You know, they were a bit quicker when people report propaganda pages. We reported some, you know, propaganda pages, which interestingly, the propaganda pages set up by the military the day before the coup, two days before the coup, there were a whole slew of fake sort of news Facebook pages the military set up. And when we report them, they're quick, very quick to take them down. But when you go through their official processes, you know if you don't have the email address for someone at Facebook, it's hit and miss whether they do. And they're certainly not being proactive enough still. It doesn't seem like they've got enough people still to move quickly because you know if you do go through their official processes, it can take hours or days still to get something taken down at which time things can be shared. Tens or hundreds of thousands of times. So they've got a lot to answer for. They're, you know, they're complicit. They helped with genocide as a Rohingya. They've, you know, they've helped the military enormously in terms of making money, spreading its lies and propaganda. They let the military use Facebook for recruitment. They've been a really good friend and very helpful to the military in a lot of ways.
0: I guess the upside of things like Facebook now is the young generation. Are using it to get the information out, to <coughs> mobilize, to, um, to kind of play them at their own game. Do you think that, that Minong Lang and the military underestimated like how quickly people were able to get those protests, get those images out, show people what was happening? Do you think that that's maybe a miscalculation, something they didn't factor in when they were planning their coup?
1: When the coup happened, it's like they had turned the page of, of the calendar just one day over from the previous military dictatorship. From twenty yeah, from twenty eleven. They were acting in exactly the same way. So when there was extremely limited internet access and very few people were on Facebook and you know, so they went for you know, state media, they went for official media, they didn't go for social media, they didn't go for internet, they didn't go for young activists, they went for the eighty eight generation like we discussed earlier. You know, they were just way behind. And, and then we saw them scrambling to catch up with, you know, we're going to ban Facebook. We're going to, then we're banning Twitter, then we're banning this. And they were just, you know, chasing themselves around trying to block and ban different sites and give these different orders. And then they couldn't. And then they're banning the internet for a few days, then overnight and then this hours and that hours and then slowing it. You know, it's, they desperately scrambled to try to control information because they were obviously still in the mindset of the 2000s when they were still lasting control and not adapting, which is strange because they've used Facebook and social media so much and so intensively themselves. I mean, and they've been really, really good at it in what they produce, very slick professional videos, lots of different, you know, clever, manipulative propaganda things. And so, you know, they've obviously got a team somewhere that was dealing very well with social media and how it works, but no one spoke to them when it came to the the coup of what, what might happen the other way around because they were clearly not anticipating what did happen.
0: And just something you mentioned earlier that actually was I thought was quite interesting was a lot of people have said to us that they they feel that there's a lot of generals, even quite top-ranking ones, that they don't think are in agreement with what's happening. But you made a great point that he felt comfortable enough to leave the country and several occasions since the coup and not worry about uh, a counter-coup or... That something would happen so do you think he has a lot more support up there or do you think people just fall into line and they just go along
1: i think we've never seen the military seriously sort of split i think you know, it's at the end of the day they've always stuck together that's i think they're bound together by an ideology a nationalist racist ideology and self-interest and when there has been Divisions at the top level, they purged each other ruthlessly and dealt with it internally. It's never spilt out into different battalions or different fighting on the street or anything like that. And even when there have been divisions, like they for the whole of the sort of 2000s, there was this so-called hardliner, softliner narrative that there were reformers there and they just needed to be given a chance. And then added on top of that was... um International pressure makes the hardliners stronger and the softliners weaker. But when you looked at the softliners, the softliners were not wanting democracy. The softliners wanted reforms of the kind that have taken place, like under the 2008 constitution. There were some generals who were saying, "Look, we're in control. We can just carry on as we are." And there were others who were saying, "No, look, we're we're as a country we're falling behind. As a military, we've got." broken and out-of-date equipment, we face uprisings every generation, every 10 years, and we need to find a system to preserve our interests and um, while maintaining you know, the power or control over what we want to, which is what the 2008 constitution was all about. So those have been the divisions rather than anyone who's like, you know, genuinely seem to want real democracy. There's been no evidence for for that. Until. Even Shui Man, who... You know, for a while was hailed as a reformer, someone who committed war crimes in current states, you know, used forced labor, horrific things. You know, he was hailed as a reformer. But when media reported negative things about MPs, like they were falling asleep in the chamber, he banned media from the media chamber. He was no Democrat at all. So I don't really think there is any real softliners waiting in the wing. When there's been division, it's about what's in the best interest of the military to maintain its power and influence, it seems like, rather than, you know, we want democracy and transition and, you know, we don't, you know. So same, same people who said he was, you know, genuinely wanted change, where he wanted some change, but he was quite happy in English language statements to talk about the need for tolerance of different religions, and then in his Burmese language radio station whip up hatred of the ranger on the very same day. So... So I've not seen any evidence of any progressive reformers in the military.
0: So if there's not going to be anyone coming up to the ranks going to upset the status quo, how how do the military get out of power? What is the best response do you think that, that has the potential to like is it the sanctions? Is it these PDFs and these ethnic armed organizations coming together? Or is it likely that they decide okay we're losing everything and we try a transition again like or is there any hope of that ever happening again
1: well i hope oh, there's no hope of a transition happening again because the military will never allow a genuine transition you know so i think that you know from people the way of people that i'm talking to now old contacts new contacts is much more now it's like that's it for the military they don't get another chance mm-hmm. and they'll never believe them again and i think you know whatever they say yeah, you know, people are not gonna believe that. And I think it's gonna be a very hard sell for the international community to to argue that, oh look, this is a reforming military, but it's not like the last reforming military, this is a different reforming military, so this time we're gonna lift sanctions and do investment and do all the same things we did last time that didn't work. Again. So I think it's it's hard to see how the military can go back to you know, if they even wanted to, which there's no signs of whatsoever, to go back to trying to claim that they want some kind of transition. And people now are talking about, you know, abolition of the military, no military now. It's you know, which you didn't really hear people saying so much. They used to talk about reform of the military and changing the military. Now they just want the military completely gone. That's it. It's over. I don't think there can be any trust. And but you remember in 2015, the military got something like 27, 28 percent of the votes. It's huge amounts. The USDP and military-aligned parties. You know, I can't see them ever getting that level of support again. And so, you know, for them, any kind of sham democracy, 2008 style constitution is not going to work for them because they'll have a, even less representation in parliament than they did this time around. So uh, I think this is one of the things that's so different this time is you can't see a way out for them. Mm. In the past, it was, yeah, they cling on to power. As things were, and things just continue to decline. Or I can't see them doing that this time. I think you know they have not consolidated their power. The coup has not succeeded. They're, they're you know technically they're in control, but they're not really <laughs> in control like they were before, to to any degree. And they're facing international sanctions and pressure of a kind that they did not face last time. I mean, under the previous military dictatorship, it was very hard to get any effective sanctions, and the entire time. Under the last military dictatorship, the main sources of revenue for them were gas revenue coming from Western companies, the same as today. But hopefully, this time round, we will see action on gas revenue from the u s and European Union. Yet yeah, people are not going to accept there was a younger generation that grew up during the reforms without the memory of the sort of the repression and the horrors and the censorship and and now they've seen what the military do so. The military can't turn around and present itself as reforming now because you've got a whole new generation of people who are awake to uh, their true nature and a whole load of people who uh, have been politicized, who were not that politicized under the previous military dictatorship now as well. You know, celebrities who were happily starring in films under San Shui and now in jail, in hiding on the run. They've spoken out this time. It's completely different. So I can't see any way out for the military, and I think that's that's something they'll be looking at. There isn't a path out where this, is, this ever gets easier, where things settle down for the military. People are going to keep resisting. The international community They're going to keep piling on pressure. So there's no way out for them. And then perhaps that will create tensions within the military.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And not where some genuine reformer comes to the fore, but anything that destabilizes them will help. You know, the only, perhaps the only savior that there could be for the military is if Aung San Suu Kyi was ever released. And, you know, she was willing to compromise and use her power and influence to try to push something through. I can't see anyone else in the country who would have a chance of doing that. But now I think, you know, people have come so far. They've seen so much. I can't see how people would accept that even from her.
0: And I think as well, like the the Myanmar diaspora all around the world have been like incredible. I think people underestimate how much they're doing to help with CDM, to set up these groups, these activists, people who are maybe away in college, who maybe left and, you know, had families abroad or, you know, for whatever reason, they went abroad for jobs. They're doing a really good job and they are not under the same pressures. They have less risk to keep going and keep pushing and keep fighting. Um, so I think they're gonna play a really big role in 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 trying to i guess push the military out because, as you say, where are they gonna go? I mean he's gotta do this to his debt. he's given everything for this coup he, he there's no way back for him, so he's gonna he's he he's not gonna back down but maybe those generals who had a quite a nice life up until the first of February are thinking, Hey, man, we could sacrifice him to to go back to what we had before, and maybe- maybe that's uh
1: yeah, a scenario. I'm, I'm not so sure <laughs> it would go that far, but um yeah, and they won't be able to go back to what they had before. But I think, again, we can't underestimate, you know, the, mm-hmm. the psychology, the belief that they have that they are the saviors of the nation and they are the only ones holding it together against all these different ethnic armed groups, against different religions, against the Muslims, against a communist NLD, against, you know, and their hatred for Aung San Suu Kyi you know, they really do believe their own propaganda, a lot of them. Yeah, their mindset there is, you know, very rigid and fixed. And as well, you know, we've never seen any significant splits in the military where which has led to, you know, different factions. You know, so all those very silly comparisons to Syria, you know, but you haven't had a military split in that way and, you know, them be part of an opposition force or anything like that.
0: In terms of those EAOs, then there's a couple of big ones that are, have not kind of really taken aside yet or are still obeying their ceasefires. Is that correct? Is that still the case?
1: Yes, there's a, a, a few of them. And I think, I think there was the reaction of one, one person that I knew there from one ethnic state to the coup was that it had happened in another country. You know, that they had suffered the, they had suffered conflict and human rights violations the entire period of the reforms while everyone was hailing freedoms and changes and, and no one in central Burma really paying attention or caring about what was happening there. And so when the coup was there, they didn't feel that it was happening to them. I think they do now because you've seen the increase in conflict. You've seen CDM people and others. You've seen airstrikes and everything. So it has changed. But ethnic armed organizations have been around for decades and they've seen all of this before. And that's, it's one thing you, you were talking about earlier when you referred to people becoming more aware of what's going on with ethnic people and working together. But we saw that again after 88. We saw after 88 the students flee the cities because of the crackdown. We saw them go to ethnic states. We saw them being taken in. We saw them, those who wanted, being given training and support for creating their own armed forces. We saw lots of ethnic alliances with the sort of Burman the Burmese groups, um, coalitions and cooperation. And then the minute that Saints Saint came in and offered sort of dialogue and told some of the Burmese groups that they can go back, most of them went back. And they abandoned all the ethnic alliances and they abandoned the ethnic people and, you know, NLD LA Liberated Area people who'd been in Mesot, who'd lived in Karen State and Kachin state and, you know, went back to Yangon and Mapedor while human rights violations against them were continuing and they felt abandoned by that. So I think ethnic armed organizations and civil society are a lot more cautious this time around because they paid a really heavy price before the Korean National Union lost their headquarters because they were sheltered during the democratic opposition and they came under sustained attack and they lost manpower. So, you know, they're more careful this, this time around. And as well, I think you saw the the initial approaches of the CRPH when they're talking about creating a federal army which incorporated the ethnic groups. It's like, and they're scratching their heads thinking, you think you can just announce that you're going to take our (laughs) soldiers you know, the the arrogance and the lack of understanding of their situation and how these armed groups are holding on to territory, desperately holding on to territory to try to protect the civilian population's in. And, and how precarious their situation is. The idea that they could go on the offensive and all join together is, you know, it just shows, a, showed a complete lack of understanding of their situation from the sort of Burmese dominated NUG and others. So, you know, that actually created a bit more antagonism there at that sort of political level. And I think there's still a, a, a real lack of understanding there. I think some people there, they're in those, they're seeing for themselves now what goes on. They're experiencing airstrikes and. The lack of boo, the lack of international support—they're getting more of an understanding, but we'll have to see how long that lasts and how that translates. And then you've got other organisations like the Wa, one of the biggest armed forces, who really don't care. They're not interested in human rights and democracy. They want to control their own territory, their own trade, drugs trade, and they're never going to side with anybody seriously unless they see, you know, that the military are suddenly going to be a, a real threat to them. But the military are bullies, you know, they're not going to take on an armed force with 30,000 soldiers.
0: Yeah, no, that's an interesting point you do make because, you know, as you say, it's like people think that the, the EAOs are going to come and save everybody. But like, I mean, it's a really interesting point you make because, you know, we've been, they've been there, they've done this and people forget easily and move on when they get what they want. And there needs to be a lot more building of trust and dialogue and understanding before that, that would be a meaningful um, alliance, I guess.
1: I think some of the ethnic leaders, they understand the need for solidarity, working together, you know, but at the same time, in the back of their minds, they're just remembering 10 years ago, governments would come to us and say, oh, what, you know, if the military fall, the country will fall apart, it will be another Yugoslavia, it will be this. And we say, no, it won't be, because you can see here on the border, the border and the different coalitions, you know, the ethnic groups and others, they're all working together. They're all cooperating together at political levels. And, you know, That all fell apart as soon as the same same government came along, you know, and he told a lot of the political leaders they could go back, and that's still a a raw, painful memory for a lot of those leaders. So yeah, they're engaging again, they're working together again, but they they've got that in mind. But they yeah, they felt completely abandoned, and they saw people that they had sheltered and fed and helped, and you know, then siding with the military. Going back to Yangon and even working with the military back government and taking positions with them and appearing on the other side of the table in peace <laughs> negotiations and things like that. So yeah, I think there were some bridges that were burned there that, you know, were going to be very hard to rebuild. And I don't think that sort of the, the current generation, the younger generation of sort of NUG leaders, I don't think a lot of them are even aware that that happened. So they just have very little understanding of what's going on in ethnic states, the situation of ethnic people, the history of what's happened. It wasn't just 88 who knew did the same after the coup in 62. He went to the border. He went to Garen. He went and tried to build an army. He wanted to march on Yangon, and then when he got a deal, he abandoned them and went back to Yangon as well. So, you know, this is a cycle of history repeating itself here, which you know most Burmese people don't know about, and so then are surprised or don't understand why many ethnic people are cautious in the way that they are
0: you know even for us like we're learning every day new things that we didn't know before as well and especially in those ethnic areas and what people have been through there and like 10 times worse than what we're seeing now it's just we're seeing it now and it's people we know and before it was people far away that we never heard of and places we didn't know about so we you know it's easy to kind of distance yourself and not make those connections and i think now that people have seen it happen to their friends, their brother, their sister, their mother, their grandmother, it's really opened people's eyes up to to the military. And I don't think they'll be closed again this time. I think too many people have seen too much and the military have not managed to control those big cities. And, and that's very obvious that they have not won this coup yet, but their brutality is still there and it's still as shocking now as as it ever has been.
2: Yeah, and what we were talking about earlier suzanne in in terms of covid and
0: mm-hmm.
2: people are very scared right now, and there 's this oxygen frenzy going on and you were talking about Facebook earlier in terms of like uh, the propaganda and stuff the images i 'm seeing at the moment are cartoons of the military stealing oxygen yeah. from old from elderly people and things i mean obviously you 've got the horrendous displaced people with, in the in the ethnic states you 've got cdm movement with people being forced to go back to work and then for covid to hit now for the way that it seems to be doing when you've got so many places with no access to healthcare, and again at the same time the uk cutting its aid to the country it just i'm really fearful on top of the coup of, of what's going to happen in terms of this crisis or the pandemic that's so far me and seem to kind of it wasn't the humanitarian disaster that everyone was expecting but yeah. This seems different. Um, so yeah, it's a big worry.
1: I think what is disappointing day one after the coup, we were saying to the British government, the European Union and others, there's going to be humanitarian crisis happening. And the only way you're going to be able to get aid into large parts of the country and certain types of things is cross border into ethnic states mm-hmm. and some of that into. You're even into the cities via the networks there. And you need to be having the conversations, talking to the civil society there, because they've all had their funding cut in the past 10 years, despite the need still being there. And that need, you need to talk to them about how to scale up and support them. And that's still not happening, you know, six months on. And so, yes, from large parts of the country, you're not, it's going to be incredibly challenging, but there are parts of the country that are not under the control of the military where there are millions and millions of people. And even under Aung San Suu Kyi's government, you would probably not have got access to most of those places because of the restrictions that Aung San Suu Kyi and the military were putting in place on humanitarian assistance in parts of ethnic states. So it was always going to be the case for a lot of these places that cross-border aid is the way it could be done. But you've got cross-border aid that can reach people in the areas under control of armed ethnic organizations. You've got cross-border aid that can also reach in mixed controlled areas or even military controlled areas in some instances where mobile Health Clinics and others, supplies and stuff can be brought in through civil society to reach people. And, you know, for, for COVID, for the vaccines, for I think none of that is happening still. There's very little, there's been emergency support for some of the CDM people that was arriving. But, you know, we know of civil society organisations that put in requests to international donors in March and have still not received a response. So COVID is not just happening in the cities, it's going to be spreading, it's going to be happening in the the townships, the towns, the villages, the remote areas as well. And it's going to be even worse. You think it's hard to find oxygen in Yangon. Try finding that in remote ethnic areas is going to be impossible. So there's lives that can be saved, people that can be reached there with international support. That's something that can be done and isn't being done again.
2: There's one thing, just because it blows my mind still, but the embassy changeover, and I just Googled it before we came on, and they're still saying that it's jaws or thin. Is the official ambassador, but it's disputed. And I just, I, I can't get my head around the fact that it just came up on social media that they, they were just walking in and changing the ambassador. And then there were, like, two very weak statements about it from Dominic. <laughs> and then it's just, like, nothing more. And I just... I just find it mind-blowing and I just wanted to ask what you thought in terms of where it currently is.
1: This was a mess. I think the Foreign Office made a total hash of this and have acted in a very unprincipled way after first saying they would do nothing to give legitimacy to the military. Yeah, they had a choice when this happened. They received the letter from the military dictatorship claiming it represented the government and saying that he was dismissed. And and the British government accepted that, whereas they could have rejected that saying we don't recognize he was the government and therefore we are not accepting this. But they didn't. They accepted it. So we've got a military attache. Why have we still got a Burmese military attache in the UK? It serves no purpose whatsoever for him to be there. We don't have our own military attache in the country anymore. But anyway, we've allowed a member of the military to wander. He lives in a luxury house worth millions in Wimbledon. And his office is another luxury house around the corner from his house in Wimbledon. So he's living in this luxurious home. He went and yeah, picked out the ambassador that had been appointed by the civilian government and the British government just rolled over and accepted it. But first they lied. So their first statement was that we, we recognise states, not governments. Well, that was a complete red herring because... We recognised Myanmar at the time of independence. That's that's done decades ago. It's not an issue. And we do have a choice to recognise governments. And I think that's where the British government is a bit traumatised, because they did that with Venezuela. So, you yeah, know, when there was that disputed election and you yeah, know, so it was declared by the opposition that the election was not free and fair. And then by default, the president is the speaker of parliament who was the leader of the opposition. So the U.S. led this big diplomatic initiative to recognize him and not the Maduro regime. And of course, it, it didn't work out very well because although he was saying I am the president, he didn't control the machinery of government. And so the, the European Union and British government still had to deal with the regime as the government that they were not recognizing as the government. And for the UK in particular, this has ended up with a case in the Supreme Court over the control of a billion dollars of gold, where, you know, it's been highlighted how the British government is saying this guy is the president and the government, and this is the guy that we request diplomatic accreditation to and that we talk to about anything diplomatically and humanitarian and so you know, the conflict, say, it's been very embarrassing for them. And it's that seems to have weighed in on the thinking of them there. Now, that's separate, though, in, in a way, because you cannot accept the military's right to hire uh, and fire ambassadors without then having to go the next step and recognize the NUG as the government. But they, the Foreign Office seems to have decided that on this issue, they're going to, you know, accept the military as the Government. So they've accepted the military's right to fire the ambassador. I think very soon we're going to see a new military appointed ambassador come to the UK. Our ambassador, Dan Chubb, finished his term in June. So if it hasn't happened already, it will happen that the British government will be requesting accreditation, formally wanting to have their new ambassador recognized by the military and work there. So, but no other country has done this. I think we're the first that's going to be accepting the appointment of an ambassador and requesting our ambassador to be accredited in the world, I think. And that's a, a big step to legitimizing the military. It's very disappointing. So I think part of the other problem with Josephine is he, he didn't recognize the CRPH. He didn't side with them either. So he's actually, he's unpopular with many of the members of the community here. He's a revolting individual. He's defended genocide. He distributed racist materials to members of parliament. He, yeah, He's a deeply unpleasant racist man. And so he wouldn't be necessarily a good representative for the national unity government anyway. But yeah, he's got some members of the community here who have sided with him. But I think as far as the UK is concerned, and I think pretty much for the European Union as a whole, many other governments, the hopes of official NUG recognition are extremely unlikely. I think it it's just not going to happen in the UK. Can't see it happening with the European Union either, even if maybe one or two individual member states go down that path. I don't think the EU as a whole will. And I think Venezuela seems to be part of the reasoning for that. So I think governments don't want to give legitimacy to the military, but I don't think they're willing to then go to the next step and endorse and recognize the NUG.
0: And it's so odd because the UK have been so vocal, you know, of of a lot of the countries. They have been so openly vocal and saying all the right things, but doing all the wrong things. Like their words (laughs) and actions totally mismatched. It's really odd because when I see those statements, I'm like, oh, good on the UK. And then I see what they do. I'm like, what? Yeah, (laughs)
1: it's it's on accountability. They're constantly talking about accountability. while. Absolutely steadfastly refusing to do anything on accountability, refusing to join the case at the International Court of Justice, refusing to support ICC referral, you know, and yet banging on endlessly about it. Um, I, I think they have been good on the sanctions. They have been good on uh, arms embargo. You know, we were asking them to try and build a coalition of countries to impose arms embargoes. They have taken that on board. They have been pushing that agenda. So credit there. They have sanctions. You know, entities and will continue to do so. So credit there. You know, they pushed the issue on the G7 agenda and others where they've had the opportunity. They were planning to do it with a Commonwealth meeting, that that was postponed. So there's some positives compared to the past, but that's only because we're starting at such a low bar. But when it comes to justice and accountability and giving the military legitimacy, I think, yeah. There's zero marks there because the same week that we were all focused on the drama at the embassy, Rob was in Asia and at a meeting of ASEAN foreign ministers where, which included the military appointed foreign minister. And again, so he's, that was just a normal diplomatic meeting under the previous military dictatorship. The policy was only to have meetings where it was discussing like human rights, democracy, humanitarian issues, but he just had a business as usual meeting with the military. So I think. It seems the British government has basically accepted they are in control and we have to deal with them and that's their thinking and they're going to carry on like that, unfortunately.
0: Like I think the yeah. one thing from talking to you, Mark, as well, is like you have been working on this for so long. It's I kind of feel hopeful that there's people like you kind of out there as well, you know. And I I hope that people listening feel hopeful that you're out there fighting their corner for them and have been for decades. This is not just you saw what happened in February, like us, and went, "Oh my God, this is terrible." Like you've been doing this for so long, and I know there's a team of you, and I know there's lots of people like you, but you're just the one we're talking to today. So <laughs> um, this is not to dismiss other people. People, but like it, it is. It's amazing what you're doing, and you are bringing about change. And whether it's slow, and whether it's not everything at once. I mean, there would be nothing if you guys weren't pushing for these things all the time.
1: Well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, I think there is uh, Burma Campaign UK. People have been there. I mean, I've been there more than twenty years. Anna's been there more than twenty years. Uh, we've got Zoya and Wayne in. Must be fifteen years, I think. And there's you know Karen and Doug. They've been there ten years seven or eight years i think everyone's been there a long time and is very committed and it's it's not just a job for us you know so this is something that we you know we've committed our lives to doing to try to to bring about this change and it, it can be very frustrating because you, you know you see horrific human rights violations you see loads of genocide and other things like that but yeah like you say i think If there aren't people internationally pushing, there would be, things would be even worse. You know, the, the position of governments would be even worse. And when, when the reform process started and we saw all these presidents and prime ministers turning up to the country. And, and I remember one former political prisoner in the country saying to me, how come we're such a small and insignificant country? How come? we get presidents and prime ministers coming here when they don't go to other countries like this and said to them, that's because there has been this global movement for years of people campaigning, lobbying parliament, lobbying governments, that there is a disproportionate interest in what happens in the country. So at times when it's hard for people to do things in the country, when it's very dangerous for them to go out and protest and do other things, the international role, becomes a bit more important then to keep the attention on, to keep the focus on, and you know, to make sure that small things like when we managed to get aid doubled many years ago. And that a lot of that went to people in conflict zones and you know, save lives. To bigger things where you get a company that's in business with the military to stop and you know you've cut off a lot of revenue to the to the military. It can be really difficult sometimes, but it you know, it is really important work and you do have to keep going, and you do get successes. And I think the one thing is it's always a long, slow, hard slog, and you you just have to keep pushing and keep pushing and keep pushing, and you have periods where it seems like you're never going to make any progress, and then you get a breakthrough. But the breakthrough can be something that means that someone gets life-saving aid. The breakthrough can be something that weakens the military, and it's worth it.
2: Thank you for listening to Arnar Podcast. You can follow us on all major social media platforms. It's at Arnar Podcast, spelled A H N A H. Please like, follow, and subscribe. Myanmar remains in our hearts and thoughts. We have not forgotten you. Let's keep the conversation going.